IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week. We review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we talk about new albums by Eve's Tumor and Black Country New Road. My name is Stephen Hyden and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. I want him to know that if my takes stink this episode, it's because I'm quiet quitting. Ian Cohen, Ian, how are you? Yeah, look here. I I served... With Salem at the Fatum Fort, I knew Salem at the Fader Fort, and Pink Panthers, you're no Salem at the Fader Fort. Oh, man. Um, Shots fired. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, kids these days, man, like, they they don't know a good festival meltdown. They don't know of waves at Primavera. They don't know about, um, you know, I like snail mail early South by Southwest. They don't know about CMJ. Wow. I, I, they're trying to hype this. Listen to you, Pink Panther show as like this. Um, I don't know, like a turn, like a turning point for the culture, and we're gonna forget about it in five days. You're like James Murphy uh, in Losing My Edge, <laughs> except it's all shitty shows. Um, <laughs> yeah. We need to fill people in on what we're talking about here because no one's gonna know anything related to South by Southwest at this point. Um, there was a performance at South by Southwest, which, by the way, took place last week. And I don't think any of our listeners knew that because this is a festival that I guess it's still going. I don't know. It, it, it's a, it totally is still going. It's a very strange phenomenon to talk about South by Southwest in 2023. I know uh, on my timeline, I did not see any discussion about South by Southwest at all, except there was a blip about this show by... Pink Panthers, who have we talked about Pink Panthers on this show? Are people going to know who this is in our I, world? I think so. I think I put her in recommendation corner. I, I'm, I'm generally speaking a fan. Okay, so I think I compared. I think I compared this artist to like a TikTok pop Joyce Manor because like all their songs are like a minute and a like they put out like this EP that was like nine songs, seventeen minutes or something like that. Yeah, but like it's not it's not pop punk. It's sort of like this like indie R and B. Type, yeah, type, that is type exactly type. what it is. Anyway, Pink Panthers, uh, big TikTok sensation. For whatever reason, she was booked to play one show at South by Southwest. And um, I don't even want to say the video went viral. Is it? Did the video go viral? Was it this big? Was it that big of a deal? I mean, she went out there and she stunk up the joint, essentially. Yeah, like, lip syncing. Completely half-assed it. It was like a half-hour set, lip synced the whole time. Uh between song banter was like mumbled into the mm. microphone and uh there was this idea online that because south by southwest is notorious for paying very little or not at all for uh the artists that perform at these showcases that she was quiet quitting you know this idea that you do a job but you don't do it very well because you're not, you know, being compensated the way you should. This is something that's gained traction in our late capitalist society. As mm-hmm. our British post-punk bands writing songs about this, about about quiet <laughs> quitting, the, the you know this uh, phenomenon. I feel like this would be something that they would talk about. Anyway, um, I hate the term quiet quitting. Can I just say that? <laughs> do I sound yeah. like an old man saying that? I just feel like Pink Panthers. They played a bad show. Yeah. They stunk up the joint. Do, we don't have to qualify it as 
something that they did on purpose uh, in order to protest working conditions at South by Southwest. I mean, the larger question is, if you already have a following that you've built online, what is the point of performing at South by Southwest in 2023? I, I, I feel like we talked about this last year and maybe even the year before that, but I, we're well past the point of anyone gaining anything from being at South by Southwest. It seems like, if anything, you're going to be hurt by it because you do a bad performance or maybe you write a blog post complaining about how little you get paid and people get upset with you. That happened to Wednesday last year. Um, what is the thinking here? Do you know? I do mean, you have any theories on this? Look, you, you can't put a price on the publicity that comes with being in like the 23 bands who killed it at South by Southwest article that pops up on like, I don't know, like Brooklyn Vegan. Shout out to Brooklyn Vegan. But like, I just love the people who like, are still like writing about this as if it is like 2009. But I mean, I think the interesting thing about Pink Panthers is like, if you, if you see it less as like a protest against South by Southwest and maybe like a protest against like whoever the fuck decide to send her there, like her entire rise to fame. And I'm like, this is a famous person. Like they have a big hit with ice spice right now, like an actual pop hit. And they more or less bypassed the, entire uh major label machinery and to begin with they got big on tiktok they got signed um and what do they stand to gain by going there and playing to like people with laminates i mean it all traces back to you know the local age song all the kids are right um of course we it always comes back to local age but this is just like another one of those you've soiled the good name of star blitz promotions type moments it's there's no there there's like nothing uh, sacred about South by Southwest that this artist, you know, breached by putting on a half-ass show where they probably had like 10 minutes to sound check. Um, you know, I, I just, I don't know. I would love to hear from people who had like positive experiences at South by Southwest. Cause like all we hear are like, yeah, they paid us with like this $200 like drink voucher. Um, and we lost $2,000 on this trip. I want to hear like the po- I I really want to hear the positives at this point because otherwise I'm really grasping at straws to describe like why someone who actually has a following and has major label backing needs to slum it out with um you know the, the slum it out with like all like the like a a twenty like a twenty uh band exploding in sound uh, showcase you know well I mean you know, again there was this uh, history at South by Southwest that bands would go there and they would play a bunch of showcases and all these music critics would get excited about them and that would help springboard them into their album cycle oftentimes their debut album so if you're trying to build buzz this was something that I think was legitimate. In the 2000s, maybe even into the early 2010s, I remember like when I was at South, at South by Southwest around like 2010, 11 or so, you know, there would be instances of someone who, of artists that would just be on all these bills and you feel like there'd, there'd just be like wallpaper coverage for like a week of this, of this uh, artist and then they'd put out their debut like two or three months later and it, it just seemed to be like setting the tone for all these ecstatic reviews that they were going to be getting. Um, but I don't remember the last time that happened. I mean, I think that it's been a long time. One thing I learned, <laughs> I don't think you know that, or I, I don't know if you know this or not, but um, did you know that Penske Media bought like a 50% stake 
in South by Southwest. Uh, like the motor oil company? No, like Penske. I'm not even being no, no, facetious. Like no, Penske Media. They own like Rolling Stone. They own Billboard. They own Variety. You know, they're... I've never heard of Penske Media. Like I, I, I sound like such a fucking rube right now. Yeah, they are. They're like uh, they're like the big dog now in like uh, you know music journalism. I mean, they they're kind of scooping <laughs> up all of these magazine brands uh, here. You know when. We're in this sort of weird stage about like whether these magazines are even going to exist in ten years, uh, but no, it's uh, it's Penske Media. They own fifty percent of South by Southwest, and I did think it was interesting that you did see Rolling Stone cover South by Southwest this year. There was some Billboard coverage and Variety coverage, so huh. it, you know I I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole there, but I, I don't <laughs> think that's like unrelated to the same company owning those magazines and them also covering this festival that again, I feel like is past its relevance as an industry showcase for bands and mm-hmm. for bands going there, hoping that they're going to, you know, break big. Um, did you ever go to South by Southwest? Did you ever cover it? No, there was a year where like, I want to say like 2011, like I was out of like my real job. My life was just like, really up for grabs and like actually considered like moving to Austin. I ended up moving to Silver Lake instead. That was a far better move. Um, but yeah, I kind of really wanted to go. Um, but you know, it, it, it never made sense. The economics never made sense. The party scene never made sense. And like the reason I like went to Coachella year in, year out for eight straight years and never did Bonnaroo or never did South by Southwest is because Coachella ends at midnight. Like there is you it's 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 really the festival for early risers. I can't envision myself like being out at like one o'clock in the morning, like watching, you know, watching the eighth band on polyvinyl's uh you know, shout to polyvinyl, but I'm just, they're just the first label I thought of. Yeah. I can't see like that generational show or whatever. I've been I, I went there like I'm trying to remember, like two or three times. You know, around like 2010, like on either side of 2010. So like from like 09 to 12 was like my... Well, that's peak. Yeah, of, of covering it. And it was fun, you know. I uh, I met Bill Murray at a Jack White show. <laughs> and I also had an extremely awkward encounter with John C. Riley at the same Jack White show. Uh, that's about all of my big memories from South by Southwest. So... Other what than more that, do you need? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was fun. But, I mean, even at the time, I remember thinking, oh, there's like an unspoken thing here among journalists that, like, we're lucky that our publications have paid for us to go to this thing that has dubious mm-hmm. value as yeah. something that we need to cover. I, I, I feel like that was true even then. Because for every act that you could that you could maybe say broke because they did really well at South by Southwest, I mean, there's... You know, umpteen bands that were like way overhyped because someone had too many drink tickets at a showcase <laughs> and they had to justify, you know, their expense account. So they just like wrote this, uh, you know, recap that nobody read. You know, I mean, that yeah. that was just the story of it back then. Um, we have a lot of topics to get to in this episode. Before we get to that, we have to dive into our mailbag. And this was actually a letter. That we were going to talk about last week, but we ran out of time. And like I said last week, we we have this backlog of emails that we need to get to. Thank you all for writing us, by the way. You know, we often get emails that we don't even read on the air. 
just because we don't have time, or maybe just because the email's kind of weird, uh, it doesn't work. <laughs> but mostly it's because we don't have time. But thank you all for writing in. It's so great to hear from you. We love uh, our listeners. Uh, you can hit us up at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. Uh, do you want to read this letter? Yeah, let, let me read this one. So this comes from Colin from Missoula, Montana. And uh, for long time, first time, thank you. Uh, I, I love that, even though like we're not a live call-in show. Th- th- I think it still applies with uh, Mailbag. Oh, yeah. So uh, Colin uh, is paraphrasing a tweet he saw a while back about how filler is just a term music critics use for songs they don't like. When you guys use the word filler, how do you define it? Is it even a useful term in music criticism? Seems to me like the term isn't as in vogue as it was in the days when you bought a CD based off an awesome single just to find the rest of the album was garbage. But I've still seen it thrown around. When do you know a song is clearly filler versus, well, the artist was clearly trying, but this song isn't for me. When I tried to think of albums with filler, my mind went right to the killer's. Sam's Town. Mm. But what if Brandon Flowers and a bunch of killer's heads are out there riding for This River is Wild? If that's the case, maybe it's not the filler I think it is. Anyway, thanks for all the music recs and good times. Clarity is a 10. I'm assuming they're talking about Jimmy Eat World and not Zed, but you never know. Ah, uh, man, I love this question. This is a very granular type question. Like we're getting into like the nitty gritty of music critic jargon. Where we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna be deconstructing the utility of the word filler. Um, just to address Colin's last point, of course, filler is in the eye of the beholder. You know, there there are no songs, I think, that are expressly made just to take up space on a record. Although I do think, you know, when we talk about the early days of al- albums, you know, albums from mm-hmm. the '60s, I do think it was common back then where you'd have a band, they'd have one hit, and they'd put that hit song at the top of the record, and then the rest of the record would just be covers of like Motown yeah. <laughs> songs or old mm-hmm. blues songs or something. Like Camptown Races or Tom Dooley or whatever whatever other like. <laughs> I don't know if they're doing Camptown song. races or anything, but <laughs> that that that's a little too old time. You know, but you know, doing uh you know, maybe they co- they cover like "Please, Mister Postman." I mean, even like yeah, early, exactly. like even like early Beatles albums, I feel like have some of that. You know, like where you've got like six or seven original songs and then a bunch of covers that are good, but you know, they're not what the hits are. It's clear that this is something that was recorded to round out a record. Um, do you use the word filler in in your reviews? Because I use the word filler. I think filler has use even now but i'm curious to hear what you have to say about that yeah it's not quite the vestigial organ that uh of the of the uh, of music criticism that collins saying but like i i think back to a very you want to get granular let's go back to like 2014 with that one perfect pussy album that had like three noise songs at the end of it and i i would hear rumors that they just like literally put that on there as filler so that they could fulfill their contract with an LP and not an EP. But I think with filler, the way I use it, um, I think one of the most, uh, like, like one of the platonic ideals for filler is electioneering from OK Computer. Like that song has the reputation of being like a filler track, which is interesting because it's not the song before it, Fitter Happier, which is like a one-minute vocoder experiment. 
I think with filler, like the difference between filler and like the experimental track that doesn't work is that filler is like the song that never gets played live. It's a little bit more straightforward. I think filler is actually more interesting to think about on like a classic album as compared to like something like, I love that you brought up Sam's Town and not Hot Fuss, one of the most notoriously filler albums of the uh, twenty of the twenty first century. See, I disagree but... with that. I, you know, people. Uh, we're going to get to this in a minute when we talk about <laughs> debut albums because I feel like that album has a reputation for being front loaded, which I think is true. But I don't think Side Two is filler. Like, I, like Midnight Show, Andy, you're a star. Songs like that, I ride for those. Okay, songs. I'll, I'll ride for Andy. You're a star. Why not? Midnight Show is a great U2 ripoff. It sounds like something <laughs> that would have been on War. So I, I'll I'll defend that song. But anyway, continue. Yeah. So I, I also think like Amity on Elliot Smith's XO. It's like typically like the more straightforward rock song that um, you know like do, doesn't quite move the needle as the rest of the album. I, you know, if you want to get like in the uh, emo realm, Crown Candy on Ear My God, uh, Housebroken on uh, Home Like No Place Is There. It's usually later on, like around track number eight or so. There was one Sun Kill Moon song called Track Number Eight where he talks about the. It's like in the process of writing a filler song where he's like, yeah, this one's not so great. It's going to be track number eight. Um, you never put the filler up front. So. Um, yeah, just generally speaking, it's like a song where the artist doesn't really push themselves, um, and it never ends up in the live set. If it ends up in the live set, then it becomes non the Even like the most tossed off song can become not filler by popular decree. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about this, and I, I think when uh, physical media was still the primary way that people uh, listen to music what was filler was probably easier to to figure out you know like especially in the cd era when albums ballooned from being 12 songs to like 18 songs long yeah it was you know, pretty obvious like what the singles were and what the songs were towards the end of the record that were okay we recorded these we might as well just put them on here because we need to fill out 79 minutes on this mm-hmm. disc um but I think now, you know, when we talk about uh, streaming platforms, you know, it got me thinking about how there's this phenomenon. I don't know if phenomenon is the right word, but I mean, there's <laughs> been really long albums lately. Yeah. Uh, you know, the latest example, like Morgan Wallen just put out a 36 song album and it's the biggest <laughs> record of like early 2023. And I do think that when you look at the economics of streaming, and, it, and I think we've seen this like in hip hop already like drake has mastered Mm -hmm. this that if you just put a lot of songs on your album you're gonna get more streams which if you get more streams then you're gonna you're gonna get more money you know like there is an economic um imperative really with padding your albums with filler now Mm -hmm. that there wasn't back in the day of physical formats when again it maybe seemed more obvious when there was filler but you know a cd was going to cost the same no matter how many songs were on it. Whereas That being said, I, it sounds to me like you never owned a No Limit rap album because those were like... Ev- like Imagine if a rap label, like every album was Metallica's load where like they advertise, like you're going to get 79 minutes of music. And I think right, that but, was like a, an incentive, yeah. But, but I mean, I think the idea then though was we're going to charge you $18 anyway. 
So yeah. we might as well give you 79 minutes of music. But they were also going to charge you $18 if you only put 45 minutes of music on. Like the right. artist wasn't necessarily going to make more money because the, there's more songs on the record. Whereas now there is an incentive to, yeah, just throw a bunch of songs on mm-hmm. your record because it will, in all likelihood, increase the number of streams. And then you're going to have more money from those streams. And, and for artists at that level, at the Morgan Wallen level, and I say level in terms of his commercial appeal, not his uh, character or anything. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it, that's going to pay off. He's going to get a couple, uh, you know, more mill in his pocket because of these this super bloated record that he just put out. Yeah, there's definitely like a game. There's like a gamesmanship in streaming that I have no idea about. But I do know that like you put out the album that's like 80 minutes long. Then you put out like the deluxe version that has like 20 more minutes and... Um, or maybe, you know what, maybe Drake or Morgan Wallen really think that they're like, you know, Robert Pollard and that every single song they make like needs to be put out there in the world. I can't speak for their mindset. Yeah, you never know. I was just thinking about that Black Pumas album where <laughs> they put out like one album, right? Is Are they still Yeah, that's always al- a great... That's a Grammy nominating machine. Like we're we're gonna be in 2028 doing this podcast talking about like how the super deluxe version of a B sides collection of the fun Black Pumas album is up for best new artist. Yeah, that that is like the special edition. Uh, you know, it's totally redefined that because normally, you know, you'd have like Interpol turn on the bright lights. You have like the. 10th anniversary edition, the 15th anniversary mm. edition, the 5th anniversary <laughs> of the 10th anniversary right. edition. Um, but, uh, you know, Black Pumas, they, they've really kind of picked up that baton and run with it with their first record. Yeah. So uh, Billy Corgan's got nothing on this guy when it comes to, like, repackaging the outtakes. Um, let's get to the meat of our episode now. Yeah, speaking of filler, none here. <laughs> none here, man. And, like, we're well below the 30-minute mark, by the way. So So good on us. Um, I want to talk to you about The Cure and their upcoming tour here because this is beginning a lot of attention uh, because of the whole Ticketmaster uh, debacle. This is like another ticketing controversy going on. For those who don't know, uh, you know The Cure, they're going on tour this spring, going into summer, and uh, Robert Smith, the lead singer and so- singer-songwriter from The Cure, he made a point of keeping ticket prices low. I think on this tour, like the cheapest tickets are like $20, which is like an incredibly low price for like a big ticket arena rock tour. And basically Ticketmaster, you know, screwed him over in terms of like wanting to take care (laughs) of fans by like adding all these extra fees and just doing what that company does at this point, just just gouging people uh, left and right. Uh, and this has been an ongoing story, and and we could talk a little bit about the ticketing thing here in a minute. But I'm really intrigued by like what the Cure status is in 2023 because obviously this is a great band. Obviously they have like a really strong back catalog, and they I think have a reputation for being like a really strong live act. Mm-hmm. But I have to admit I was like a little surprised by just how big this tour is. You know, I, I I've said this before on the show that if you sell out an arena in Los Angeles or New York, if you have any kind of audience, you should be able to do that. You know, because there's yeah. enough people in those markets, and 
you know, the, the, the concert audience is huge in those areas. Uh, but here, like I live in the middle of the country, Twin Cities. They're, the Cure is playing here in June. And that concert, I don't know if it sold out immediately, but it's it, it, it sold out now, I know. Like it sold out very quickly. And my sense is that this tour is selling out everywhere. And um, again, this is a this is a huge band, but like I I wouldn't not have expected that kind of reaction. I mean, because this is like like they're not as big as you two, like as far as bands from that era, but like they're like maybe like right below that. I mean, mm-hmm. are you surprised by this at all? Well, I think this gets into you know, what it means to be a Cure fan as opposed to what it means to be a U2 fan. Like, we talked about this a little bit uh, when Interpol and Spoon went on tour together, and we talked about, like, well, here's why Interpol's the headliner, because, like, Interpol, even if they only made, like, one and a half great albums, like, that's a band you can shape your entire identity around, and that's absolutely the case with The Cure. Like, no matter if you're... Um, someone who just knows the singles or someone who, you know, goes really, really back into the deep catalog. If you like The Cure, like, that is probably shaped your entire personality in a way where uh, you're gonna go see the, you're gonna go see The Cure. And more to the point, like, you never know when this is gonna be the last Cure show you're gonna see. Not in the same way that you wrote about, like, Bruce Springsteen, but more that, you know, this is a... How how much longer are they going to go for? And they only come around to tour every now and again. But yeah, I mean, this, this, I think they sold out like three nights in LA and they could probably sell out 10 if they really, really wanted to, just kind of based on what I've seen as uh, most people's painful inability to get any tickets. Um, I mean, the, the whole, this whole thing was, I mean, we've had a bunch of Ticketmaster debacles, but like none of them mattered in the past because none of them happened to me. Uh, <laughs> and this this time around, man, I'm not like a I, I can't I don't have a local radio guy like you know our big city slicker Steve, but I couldn't even get on the wait list for the wait list because um, I don't think I didn't sign up for the verified fan. Uh, thing at Ticketmaster, like I thought that was just a thing you did if you wanted to get like I don't know better seats or like a meet and greet with Lal Tolhurst or whatever. But no, like I, I got there at like the presale day and it was like nope, can't get in the queue. Uh, and yeah, that and it was a wrap. So I th- this just also like I don't know how much the tickets cost for face value, but like I know that like two tickets um ended up costing one hundred ninety one dollars combined, which. Honestly, I'll pay that every fucking day of the week to see the cure, but I don't know what the actual like ticket price was before fees. Yeah, I mean, for two tickets, uh, I mean, depending on where they are, I guess. I mean, that doesn't. It seem, doesn't matter, <laughs> but you know, I yeah, that doesn't seem that outrageous to me, uh, considering what some of these tours are charging. Uh, I was thinking about this. I think you're right. There definitely is a level of devotion that Cure fans have that like lend to these types of tours doing really well, and. Um, I mean, I feel like it has been a while since you've been able to see this man without going to, like, Riot Fest or yeah. something. Uh, I, lo- I saw them in, like, 2019 at this thing called Pasadena Daydream, which was this mini festival in um, Pasadena, as the name implies. And it was, like, them and the and Deftones and Pixies. And it was a great set, but it wasn't, like, The Cure playing for, like, three hours. Yeah, I, I think one thing about The Cure that is uh, pretty clear to me is that you know, I think Robert Smith has done like a really good job shepherding this band's, and I hate this term, but there's no other term for it. Like he's he shepherded the brand 
really well. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And I know, I think there's going to be a Cure album at some point. Maybe it'll coincide with this tour. <laughs> but, like, they're essentially a greatest hits band at this point. Uh, like, that's what people are going to be coming out to see. And clearly, he's making an effort to treat his fans well on this tour with the, with the ticket prices in ways that, say, like, Bruce Springsteen hasn't seemed to do with his tour. Like, Robert Smith has really made an effort to try to keep tickets low. Like you said... Like the Cure live experience, like looks pretty awesome. I I was looking at the last time they played here in the Twin Cities, which was 2016. It's like a 34 song set, like multiple encores. Like it looked like awesome. Yeah, uh, and I was like, man, okay, because I've never seen the Cure, and just looking at that set list, I'm like, if they do something like this, this is going to be an incredible show. Um, I think you were talking about this because you haven't gotten tickets yet. So you're going to be looking. I, I kind of, sort of do. Like, they, what what Robert Smith did, one of the things that he did to, like, help out the fans is make it, um like, these tickets non-transferable because that's supposed to, you know, uh, kind of blunt the secondary market of StubHub or whatever. But what, uh, and, but what happened is I have a friend who got tickets, but, like, he double booked himself for the Cruel World Festival on the same day. And that's, like, a festival with, like, Susie and the Banshees, Echo and the Bunnymen. Like, all these bands that you also like if you like The Cure. So, he's going go to he's gonna go to that. And so, I have, like, a – I have a claim on those tickets. We just got to figure out, like, how I'm going to pretend I'm a guy named Carlos and my wife is someone named Ariel. <laughs> <laughs> I mean – this thing has been something that's emerged uh, in recent years, making tickets non-transferable. And it's designed, like you said, to uh, you know discourage scalping. That you know, you, if you buy a ticket, you have to either go to the show or transfer it to somebody else for what you paid for it. Although I have heard stories about how, because of surge pricing, mm-hmm. Someone might pay a certain price, and then depending on what the demand is later on, the price like lowers, and like you don't have any control over like where that price is. It's so like you, an underwater mortgage. Yeah, so you may end up paying you know two hundred dollars, and then only able to resell it for like a hundred dollars, <laughs> which is kind of a weird thing. I don't know. Ticketing is so like screwed up right now. I don't know. Like how to fix it, really? Because there's all these kind of good faith solutions that come along, but because the system is so corrupt, either Ticketmaster themselves gouges customers, or there's some sort of parasitic company that comes along to screw over customers. Um, it's a very hard way to go about it. It seems like the only solution that works are these bands that have fan clubs. Like Mm. Pearl Jam, for instance, and you can sell tickets directly to people, although you still sometimes have this same sort of non-transferable issue going on. I don't know. Yeah, we just need to get, like, if Taylor Swift couldn't, like, move the needle and, like, Beyonce fans couldn't move the needle and, like, Bruce Springsteen fans couldn't move the needle, like, what the, like, I mean, Pearl Jam, I, I mean, I'm sure you don't need convincing that, like, Pearl Jam was right all along. Um, yeah, shy of like, I, I, I'm just hoping and praying that like some Beyonce fan who was like screwed over because they couldn't pay $5,000 for like a Renaissance ticket, like, you know, grows up 
becomes like a member of Congress and like this is like their kind of Joker origin story for like take for like bringing down Ticketmaster. I mean, like let's use these like let's use these Stan energies for good. You know what I mean? All right. So I wanted to talk to you about debut albums and your favorite mm-hmm. debut albums because I, I wrote a story this week for Uproxx in which I wrote about my 100 favorite debut albums. This was like a massive column that took me weeks to to write and to research and figure out. It was like 13,000 words. And I think it went over pretty well. Of course, there were disagreements Mm -hmm. uh, with it. Uh, I just wanted to run over quick, like the biggest complaints I got about things that were not on the list. Uh, The first Cars album from 1978 as the one with just mm. what I needed and best friend's girl. That was by far the one I had the most complaints about. And uh, I feel bad about that because it was supposed to be on my list and I don't know what happened. It somehow mistakenly got left off. I mean, I'm writing about like a hundred albums, so yeah. it's easy to <laughs> And it's track. just you, so. <laughs> and then the other, the two other big ones, which are more pertinent to uh, the IndieCast universe are <laughs> the Arctic Monkeys first record. I didn't put on my list. Mm-hmm. And that's one that I considered putting on, but uh, I like the Arctic Monkeys, but I, I kind of like their later records more, even though their first one is the most critically adored and most popularly adored. Uh, is it? I think among... More fa- so than AM? Well, that's a good question. I feel like it's among... So, I feel like that's sort of like a Californication versus like Blood Sugar Sex Magic sort of thing, where yeah. it's like... You know, version one, version two. I feel like among people who are maybe 10 years younger than us, that that's a big record, the first one. Mm -hmm. Um, And the thing I realized about myself as I was just, because I was pulling from all different eras for this list. I was really trying to be representative. And I realized that I'm not really a fan of that, like, post-Oasis, aughts-era lad rock scene. Okay. You know. So Jets, you you prefer the second Jet album. That's the only reason. Well, no, Jets Australian. They're Australian. Ah, They're not, right. like like Libertines. Yeah, close enough. Like Libertines up the bracket. Well, I would say oh, like yeah. I would put Get Born on my list before up the bracket. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't put Get Born on my list. I don't really like the Libertines. I've, they've, they've never really moved me that much. Um, and then the other one was Block Party. Block Party, Silent yeah. Alarm wasn't on my list. And I've gotten in trouble for Block Party before. I had a tweet about Block Party once. I think I called Silent <laughs> Alarm like a second tier debut album. Yeah. And that you did. I, that was all hell broke loose. Even you were dragging <laughs> me over that tweet. Yeah, people were complaining about Block Party not being on this list on my behalf. You know, <laughs> it's like the, you got like the Ian Cohen defenders, and like based on the criteria of your list, I don't know if I would even put like Silent Alarm on there. Not just because, um, you know, I think Weekend in the City is like quite a good sophomore album. I just don't think it like really invented anything or is even that like popular. I think it's just like very popular amongst people who care deeply about what I have in the recommendation corner. Well, it's like I put uh, Band of Horses on my list. <laughs> which I love, by the so way. So that would be like my, you know, that's where I'm at as far as like mid 2000s rock albums, you know, yeah. like that's my block party. It, although I guess you're, I mean, you are with both of those records, so there's no yeah. there's no binary for you. One thing that uh, I was thinking about when I when I put this this list together was like my top five are all albums from the '60s and '70s, and I felt pretty washed when I saw that. <laughs> I was like, can I really do this? 
and really like my whole top 10 i think is all i think the newest album was like the lauren hill album and then the rest were like all you know pre-90 basically and i realized because you know and we're talking about like kind of chalky choices like i had Jimi hendrix up there i had the velvet underground i had like patty smith Leonard Cohen, television, records like that. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at this, and I'm like, this is so chalk. But <laughs> it's also like, I can't really put like Frank Ocean Channel Orange in here just for the sake of it. Or I can't just right. put, you know, which I love that record. But I I realize like I, I do have a bias toward like foundational records. Like it's hard for me to put something from the last 20 years above like the Velvet Underground because I just feel like that is so uh, seminal in music history mm. along with still being great. Yeah. And that's an, and I want to get your take on that. I'm curious how you feel about that. And also like the idea that in 10 years there probably won't be any albums from the 60s in like this kind of list. Like, like wh- whoever is like the equivalent of me in 20... 20- 33 who wants to make like their own like best debut albums list i don't think they're going to put these albums from the 60s anymore i think and that's just because of the overton window of (laughs) generations you know in the same way that i didn't have anything anything from the 50s on my list you know like people get farther away from this stuff and look this these albums came up before i was born too but i was Mm -hmm. raised in a time where i was like well these are important records and I still think they're important. I still think that they're great. Like, what do you think about that? And like, what are your favorite debut albums of all time? Well, you know, I think what we're seeing here is clearly, you know, our boy Steve being Penske pilled and like putting all the Rolling Stone classics. They they got to you. I know. Too. I that's the thing. <laughs> I, I looked at that and I was like, ah. Oh, but at the same time, I'm like, fucking yeah, Jimi Hendrix I, experience. It's like, though, this is a great fucking record. Like, I, I'm not gonna not say that's the best debut record in order to, you know, sort of make a point or strike a posture that is more interesting. I don't know. At the end, I was like, I still think this is the greatest thing, but it does feel like saying, Oh, Citizen Kane is the greatest film of all right. time. Like it's that kind of take it's boring. Even if it might be true, you know, that's always the dilemma. I think when you make something like this, I think that like, albums such as the velvet underground and like you know leonard cohen the ones you put in there like if you're gonna be the kind of person who makes a hundred like a best 100 album debut albums list like that's the kind of stuff you will be guided to i think that like anyone who cares about anyone who cares about like the concept of the canon enough to do this kind of project is probably going to be steered towards you know the very albums you mentioned and they always will be but you know I mean, I have some, I have some pretty, you know, obvious rejoinders to the list, you know, first of which is that, you know, I gotta, I gotta be mean, say words like rights of spring right. or diary or American football. Like I gotta do that. Like I wouldn't be me if I didn't. Diary However, diary the, would be the one out of those you mentioned that would yeah. have been closest to making it for me. The one, the one complaint, the one biggest complaint I have though, is putting Coldplay's parachutes on there when they clearly leveled up not just with their next album but 2005's critically acclaimed <laughs> x and y uh, I, I 
I, I, I think that is like maybe the fourth or f- like fifth best Coldplay album, but I digress. Yeah. I think that I don't think fourth I, or I, fifth, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think Rush of Blood to the Head is better, probably. Yeah. And then I would say like v- like Vida La Vida or Viva La Vida yeah. would be. But yeah, you are the X and Y <laughs> truther. I oh, love we it. are two years away from the twentieth anniversary. But um, yeah, I, I I love this list because like as far as like what I would do, you see, like I would take it from like a far more shit posty angle, and also you have like a working knowledge of music that was made before nineteen ninety seven. So uh, like I would put like the clap your hands say yeah album on there just, <laughs> right. just because like what album is better at being a debut um i think that you know one that pops up i think the stone roses should have been on there in the same way that you put laws on there yeah because like stone roses fell off so fucking spectacularly after that although but, but the laws never made another record like stone roses true. tried to follow it up with second yeah. coming which i don't hate i i don't hate that record <laughs> Love's uh, Res is kind of a good song. Um, yeah, Stone Roses was another one that was I, I heard a lot of complaints about, and I and mm. that would you know I don't feel bad about the Arctic Monkeys thing. I understand no. um, that uh, that's an important record, but like for me personally, I, I don't love that album. But I am a fan of the Stone Roses record and like that Cars album. Yeah, I love, and I meant to put it on, and I didn't. So that one I feel legit bad about. But yeah, Stone Roses, yeah, I, I, I could see that. Mm-hmm. That's a record I remember. There was a time where that was considered like one of the greatest albums of all time. I feel yeah. like, like in the spin universe, I feel like that album would be mm-hmm. in the conversation. And then they did that Coachella reunion date that no yeah. one went to. And I feel like... That was so sad. Yeah, and I feel like that kind of killed any lingering cred that they had. Like, through yeah. no fault of their own. I, I don't hold that against them that 21-year-old L.A. kids didn't want to see the Stone Roses, uh, you know, 25 years after their album came out. Um, but yeah, I feel like that kind of gave people permission to say, oh yeah, this, this band's done. You don't really well, have to care about this anymore. It's funny because Stone Roses, like a nu- that album is kind of notorious going back to the idea of filler. Like they have the song Don't Stop, which is just the previous song played backwards. And um, but yeah, I think that's an album like ripe for rediscovery. I think I wish that like, you know, all the hardcore bands that are like trying to rip off like Oasis, maybe they should like start to like veer maybe a bit more towards that sort of earlier Manchester sound. But um, yeah, otherwise I think like the, the, the main takeaway from this, like, or not the main takeaway, or at least the thing I realized after having read this list is that I've never listened to a full Jimi Hendrix album. The only one I have listened to is, I don't know why I had the blue, like there was the Jimi Hendrix blues album. (laughs) Like it was so fucking long and so boring. Yeah. That's like a compilation that, (laughs) <laughs> just repackaging stuff. Uh, yeah, you know, Hendrix is somebody that, uh, and this is true, I think, of some of the hip-hop records I wrote about, too, mm-hmm. where you end up on so many lists that people just kind of yada, yada, yada past you. Like, okay, yeah, Jimi Hendrix, best guitar player of all time. Like, who cares? Mm-hmm. And in the same way that I think people do that with, like, Nas, Illmatic now. You know, like, we're done. Yeah. Like, that album was... At the top of so many hip hop lists that people just started rolling their eyes about it. I think De La Soul had that. We talked about this, I think, last yeah. week. 
people would roll their eyes at three feet high and rising like oh this is like old head rap music thankfully that's come around on de la soul Mm -hmm. but yeah i don't know Jimi hendrix is someone who's in the canon but also doesn't get listened to a lot and uh i don't know i think he's he it feels it feels yeah, it feels corny to say that Jimi Hendrix is great, but he is. I, I feel like he's so underrated in a weird way, even though he's like still super famous and like considered part of that canon. For all the shit that like the Doors get, Jim Jim Morrison has proven to be like far more influential than Jimi Hendrix on the indie world. And I I love the fact that you like pointed out the all the ways that the that Jim Jim Morrison's uh, influence has spread. But I mean. Yeah, our experience, like, it just reminds me of all the conversations I have with my wife about, like, all these movies, these classic movies that I've never actually seen. Right. But, like, I'm just aware of, you know, like, like, um, like, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Like, I've never sat down and watched it, but, like, <laughs> I'm, like, I, I, I've, I've, like, pieced it together through, you know, wisdom and, like, yeah, I never need to watch that, so... Well, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe we're gonna go to Hendrix cast. You listen to Hendrix before you watch Ferris Bueller. Uh, okay. Hendrix has held up better than Ferris Bueller, I think. Oh, uh, I'd agree. Okay, let, let's talk about like Eve's two, like two more. I want to talk to you about this record. This came out last week. The it's the fifth album from Eve's two more. Praise the Lord who choose, but which does not consume, or simply hop between worlds. Uh, mm. Can we just call this praise a Lord from here on out so we don't yeah. have to say this whole the album story title? is in the soil, keep your ear to the ground, etc. This is like a Fiona Apple type uh, album title. Or um, a Fallout Boy type album. Where you know, that's they, they got they got a parenthetical in the middle of their album title. Um I was curious to talk to you about this record. Again, it came out last week and I've been listening to it quite a bit uh, this week and it's gotten really good reviews, as did the previous record, which is Heaven to a Tortured Mind, which was a, which was a record that I like quite a bit. And uh, East Timor has had an interesting trajectory because started out in sort of like the experimental noise world, and over the course of five albums has grown like more and more mainstream to the point where on this record, this sounds to me basically like a pretty straightforward like indie pop record like if you had told mm-hmm. me that this was like a new band that was influenced by tame impala like i wouldn't yeah question that if i didn't know anything else about the record um and it reminded me of a conversation that we had recently about the band model actress and we also brought in monoskin into that conversation this idea of like sort of like sleazy rock music Mm-hmm. And I think this is another example of that, you know, sort of building on what uh, Ease Tumor was doing on Heaven to a Tortured Mind. You know, a lot of people compared that to Prince, you know, maybe even like Sly Stone, that type of era of like sexy R&B rock. You know, there's a riot going on that 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 era of Sly Stone. Mm-hmm. And this record is kind of doing the same thing, but it seems like a little bit cleaner. And sonically... It sounds great. It's a really good headphone record. Uh, this record was engineered by like the guy who like worked on uh, my beautiful dark twisted fantasy. He's also uh, this also involves uh, Alan Mulder, who's like one of the great uh. sort of architects of like '90s alternative rock, uh, working with you know like uh, my uh, my bloody Valentine and Smashing Pumpkins. Um, but it's interesting with this record because I feel like it's not quite experiment experimental enough to be considered like avant garde but it's not quite catchy enough to be like a pop record. Mm-hmm. Um, and I 
I like the record. I feel like I liked it like it probably more than you do, just from like the little we've talked about it. But it does have like a little bit of that daddy's home thing where <laughs> I wish it wasn't quite so tasteful. Like, yeah. like if you're gonna make a sleazy rock record, I think you have to embrace trashiness full on. And this isn't like a trashy record. It's like a classy sleazy record. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you get the same vibe from this album. So th- this got me thinking, you know, maybe not so much about like Monoskin or uh, model actress, although I do get where you're coming from on that. Like East tumors, like, you know, can sit like at least compared to like other indie rock, like more subversive or sexy or what have you. But it made me think of a couple of um, artists that w- didn't make the debut album list. And I think they could such as like massive attack and by extension tricky. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, and when I heard um, the previous album, Heaven to a Tortured Mind, it made me think of Max and Quai. Um, I believe that's how it's pronounced. Like, much less hip-hop in it, but it was this same sort of idea, this, like, disruptor, like, taking, um, you know, tropes about glam rock and, uh, you know, ma- updating them for, like, a newer, cooler era. And, like, when I listened to that album, I'm just like, yeah, this sounds badass. This sounds cool. Like, this is what this album does. And... Um, you know, as Eve's tumor has gone on and making, I guess, more like conventional records, I'm like finding myself disappointed in it. And I'm also thinking of the fact that, you know, Tricky as at one point, like one of the, like just some of the most unimaginably coolest shit you could possibly hear. And then like five years later, he was having Ed Kowalczyk come onto his album. Oh man. Um, it always comes back to live. Sipping um, on Lakini's juice. <laughs> yeah, that's right, man. Fucking... I would love to hear Tricky talk about how, like, you know, the distance to here blew his fucking wig back. But, <laughs> you know, this album, to me, like, I find myself, th- like, if I had heard it, it without any sort of previous knowledge of these two, I'm like, this kind of sounds like, I don't know, Currents-influenced music or, like, the the like the music Foxing was making in 2018, which means I should really like it. And I think that there's just this discrepancy between how it's so often described as like, oh, this is groundbreaking. This is like genre bending. This is the future of rock. And I'm thinking to myself, similar to like how St. Vincent gets compared to like David Bowie almost reflexively because like, you know, she changes up her outfits for every record. I'm like, where, and how this gets compared to Prince, like where are the songs, man? Like, I, I think Jackie is my favorite East Tumor song from like, you know, past like Safe in the Hands of Love. Because it has like a chorus, and I'm like, I listen to this album, and you're right, it sounds, it sounds fantastic, and I can't remember any of it. Yeah, and I'm wondering if like, I don't know, this artist, you know, because like the possibilities of what they could do seem just boundless, uh, and safe in the hands of love, and I feel like I don't know, I feel like this sort of thing has kind of run its course, and I'm like, I, I just, I just kind of don't quite understand how like. I mean, if if you have, like, a very kind of narrow view of, like, what rock music should do, this is, like, some exciting shit. But otherwise, like, I feel like this is the sort of album that almost has, like, a like a Beach House-style functionality to it. Like, I don't get the... I don't... I, I wish it was more, like, abrasive or weird or just had, you know, just something that could, um, I don't know, be kind of memorable. Yeah, I mean... Again, I think I like the record a little bit more than you do, but what you're saying does resonate uh, with mm-hmm. me because I I think this record is good and I want it to be great. And I don't think it quite gets to great. And mm-hmm. 
I'm going to bring back Monoskin here. You know, I, I, when, I was, when I was talking about model actress, I described them as like, I think, upscale Monoskin. And <laughs> I do think that that's a lane that is still open out there that I think would be kind of appealing. I, you know, I think the problem with Monoskin is that like, they're just like a little too stupid. Uh, you know, like, but I feel like the problem with like a lot of this indie music that is trying to kind of move into that sleazy, sexy lane is that it's maybe a little bit too smart, a little mm-hmm. too tasteful. And we need a little more smell the glove in this, you know, yeah, not I, too much, but I, I, yeah, I, I, I kind of wish this had like a little bit of monoskin in it where it had like a little of that stupidity in it, because yeah. I think you need a little bit of that, uh, to, kind of convincingly be sleazy and have it be trashy and not tasteful. Like, cause sleazy music, I think that's tasteful. It's like, it's like a fashion shoot of like a trashed hotel room, like where everything is in the right place. And like, yeah, you've mm-hmm. technically done something decadent, but it feels like a little calculated and it doesn't have that sort of exhilaration that you get mm-hmm. from this kind of thing. And Again, this is a record that I enjoy when it's on, but I, I, I kind of agree with you. I, I don't know if it has like that grabber song or that grabber hook or guitar riff or whatever it is that is going to stick in your mind and want to l- make you want to listen to this over and over again. Yeah, like I, I would like to see them like open for, I don't know, Blink-182 or just like do something where like the, the out, like it's at risk of being disliked or misunderstood but there's just something about it like in the kind of bubble of like you know people who mostly you know listen to rock music that like isn't dumb yeah that makes it seem a little disappointing yeah absolutely um speaking of music that is not dumb let's talk about (laughs) the new live record from one of your favorite bands right now black country new road live at bush hall and i feel like you you should be the one to set this record up because Basically, this is a band from England. Uh, they uh, put out a record last year. One of your was that your favorite record of the year? Ants. I would here? say, like looking back on it, that 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 would be my number one album of twenty twenty two. Ants from up here, or ants from up there, I should say, not yes. up here, up there. Up there. Um, and they lost their lead singer, and then they went on tour, and they like whipped up a whole new like albums worth of music, and they played it on this tour. And you saw this tour last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they opened up for Black Midi, um, which was such a fun show. Like, um, it, yeah, I, I, my, most of, I haven't had a lot of great concert experiences for many of the reasons that we've talked about, like in the post pandemic era, just people talking throughout and, you know, uh, ex, like the crowdedness of like the live scene. And, um, but this was like just a super impactful show to watch because, like you were saying, they played entirely new music. Uh, like the crowd had never heard before and the crowd was like super into it. It's just not something you see a hell of a lot outside of like the jam band era or jam band world or like, you know, early animal collective where they put out an album and then just on the ensuing tour play like entirely new shit from the next album. And, um, it gave me a lot of hope about where this band would go because, you know, they're clearly super creative, super prolific, have a really cool vision. Um, and I'm, and I'm thinking, okay, this is going to make a really cool record and it'll probably come out sooner rather than later. And then what they decided to do is just, uh, put this, put these songs out as a live record. And they're like, yeah, this is not the album, but like, this is the end of that era. This is what we're going to do to commemorate it. And I can't think of like a precedent 
or at least in the indie world for something like this. Um, I saw some of it on YouTube. I don't like the fact that uh, it was interrupted by YouTube ads. Not a not a ideal way to experience this uh, this 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 record. But um, yeah, they're putting it out just as a you know conventional live record. And I'm curious, like what you what you think about it because it sounds like you didn't see the show um, and you know don't have like that visual component to it. But like what I'm curious, like what you. Th- like, where do you stand with this man right now? So, okay, my, my take on this band is that I think I it's a lot easier for me to appreciate them than it is to like or even, like, get what they do. And mm-hmm. it really, this really was driven home with this record because everything you're talking about sounds, like, really awesome. This idea that, like, hey, they lose their lead singer and instead of just, like, imploding like a lot of bands would they're like no we're gonna write all these new songs we're gonna play them on the road and like the audience is really engaged with it and you know we're doing these adventurous things and we're not playing it safe and i'm like oh this sounds great and 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 just like what they're attempting to do with this sort of like huge sounding almost like orchestral music Mm -hmm. uh it's so ambitious and again like i i really respect the ambition on display. And and I also appreciate how devoted their fans are because I feel like the people who love this band, like they fucking love this band. Like this is true (laughs) for you. And I've seen other people talk about them online. I have to say though, that like I'm a little flabbergasted by this band and by like the emo appeal that they have, because they sound like so Renaissance fair to me. (laughs) <laughs> like, like there are Jethro Tull levels of flute on this record, and look, I like Jethro Tull. I'll I'll ride for Jethro. Were, were they on the debut list? They were not on the debut list. I think they didn't really get going until like the second or third record. Um, and I don't know. I, I I there's so much about this band that on paper seems great, but then I listen to the records and it seems so precious hmm. to me. And it, it's uncool, but not in the way that I often like uncool music. Like uncool music to me is usually like really earnest. Maybe it's like embracing like unfashionable sounds, but it has like a strong sense of self. Like this band just seems kind of like nerdy to me. <laughs> like and I don't know. I, I'm going to turn this back around on you because I, I feel like you used to clown fiery furnaces Still back in do. the day. What's the difference between them and this band? Because I feel like, and, and look, I should ask this to myself because I like Fiery Furnaces. I'm a fan of them. But I feel like they did a similar thing where it's this sort of like big top circus music where you're going from like one fragment of, of a song to the next and it's like caterwauling from like quiet to loud. You know, and, and it has this sort of like wild carnival feel to it. And that's something I enjoyed about the Fiery Furnaces. But with this band... I, it just has not connected with me. Like, what is it about? Like, like, what makes this band emo? Like, that's something I don't really understand. Well, a lo- a lot of what made this album, like, like you were saying, so have such a strong cadre of devotees is like the emo component of it. You know, like it's all. And at, by the same token, like Isaac Wood is like the one reason that 
uh, Anthem up there was the one big ticket 2022 album you could fearlessly mock online without any repercussions. Even though this, like, yeah, the guy left the band to like take care of his mental illness or whatever. But like, yeah, fuck this. Um, but it's not only yeah, him I, I, though. I think like the yeah. music itself. Is... I think it was largely him, like the, his lyrical approach. And I mean, well, it's I a, don't know. Anth- I, I, cause I feel like this live record is still like pretty it's grating. Precious. It's pretty yeah, grating it's... for me. But I understand someone who's like all in on this band is probably going to love it. But like, I do think they are a love it or hate it kind of band. Regardless of who the lead singer is, I think they still are even without that guy on this record. Yeah. I think the difference between this, you know, this iteration of the band and Isaac Wood is that ants from up there is like a real like emo album. It's like lyrically quite similar to like, say like Los Campesinos where it's like heavily referential and largely about like a breakup and, you know, the guy struggles with mental illness and, you know, uh, it, it really struck me as like this kind of combination of like emo, but like mid aughts orchestral indie now. And, and yeah, it's emo as fuck. Now that said, the difference between this and say fiery furnaces, well, first off, like I'm always going to be mad at fiery furnaces cause I spent $20 on blueberry boat and it fucking sucked. I mean, you know, it's like when someone borrows $20 and they never give it back, you never forget that shit. That's a great record. Um, That's a great record. I'm going to counter that. I would be annoyed right. if I read your review and I bought ants from up there when I, if I was 14, there it is. And I think that, you know, <laughs> the level of investment, people don't understand that these days, but you know, I, I think with this album, um, it does lean harder on the kind of Renfair orchestration and the fact that it has like three or four lead vocalists as opposed to one. It was really cool to watch, but I think that listening to this album, I can't quite connect with it to the same degree that I did Ants From Up There. I think Isaac Wood and like, you know, his, for lack of a better, like very grating voice and his grating lyrics. Like I love them, but I could understand that these artists, the the singers they have now are more conventionally pleasing. And, you know, I, I, I need that, sh- I need that shittiness. You know what I mean? Like I need that, um, sense that this might annoy people. And you know, that it, this makes me think more of like, you know, a band like Jockstrap, which is, uh, more, I think, conventionally critically appealing, and also several members of Jockstrapper in this band. Um, you know, I'm I'm hoping that they develop like a more distinct personality uh, in lieu of uh, Isaac Wood. Like the the last thing I want is for like Black Country New Road to kind of do that Eve's Tumor thing where they are conventionally pleasing, and you know they're still like adventurous relative to like you know modern indie rock, but. I want them to still have a kind of a annoying edge, but like, I totally see where like, this is just kind of uncool. I'm here to tell you that they still have the annoying edge. (laughs) I want to say more like kind of a personality angle. This one seems like a lot more like, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's warmer. It's, um, you know, it's more like kind of hopeful. Like people are having a good time. Like I, I need that feel bad element. <laughs> yeah. You know, again, I'm glad they exist and I'm glad they're doing yeah. what they're doing. Um, and I hope that I connect with it at some point, but like, I'm, mm. I'm still not there. And I uh, still, and I still think that they are, uh, I think they're a long way away from being conventional. Like at this point, uh, you know, th- this is still like I think a pretty challenging record, and I think is going to require someone to be on their wavelength to get this. And again, I think that's great. I, I, I we've talked about this about this on the show many times. I like the idea of bands that uh, 
not everyone's going to get. And this is mm. definitely a band that I do not get, but I appreciate that they have connected with people like yourself. And bands that people don't get and feel comfortable saying, yeah, I don't get this. And like, not like, I, I love how this band, like discussion about this band is not restricted to DMs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And besides, if you don't like this album, they're probably going to put out an entirely new album of music by the end of the year, given how fast they work. All right, we've reached the part of this episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? So I'll have to admit, I've not been uh, listening to a ton of music this week, but I do want to give a shout out to this uh, up and coming Chicago emo outfit called Fallout Boy, who has a new. Uh, um, <laughs> Is that out yeah, this week? I believe it's out this week. Oh, we, my we've, God. We've, we've failed our listeners. We got to. Um, no, we'll talk about it next week. Yeah. But. Um, yeah, I, I've I've gotten more into audiobooks, and one in particular I want to bring up. This came out towards the end of last year. Huasu's Stay True. Um, this is a book that I avoided <laughs> uh, through just real contempt prior to investigation. Shit, you know, I, I it's a writer I'm familiar with. I saw that they're a professor at Vassar, and then Bard. Um, most of the praise I had seen came from like New York based music writers. And, you know, when I saw it, it's like, okay, it's like this reminiscence about being in college in Berkeley. It's like that, this doesn't sound like me and like, come on, like who the fuck is this for except for me? You know what I mean? And I've really found this book to be interesting, um, as like, look, in some ways I can't relate to this guy at all. Like he's talking about listening to Palvo in high school and, (laughs) Like, you know, being like really into Bell and Sebastian and making zines and such. And, um, you know, it reminds me of this like alternative vision of college. Like I I thought college was going to be like that for me, not just like, you know, getting fucked up off Steel Reserve and listening to The Strokes Is This It. Um, but also the Pearl Jam just takes a beating in this book, Steve. Also, Sandy. Oh, really? What does he say about well. Pearl Jam? Well, his, it's about his relationship with his friend, and I'm not all the way through it. This guy named Ken, who's like conventionally uh, attractive, conventionally popular. He's in a fraternity at Cal, and this guy like drives him around El Cajon, which is like where Lester Bangs is from, um, and looking for like the yellow lead betters, um, the yellow lead better single. Basically, Pearl Jam is seen as this like super mainstream kind of frat boy music, and. Um, you know, and it's, it, it, this, this book is really just about, um, kind of analog friendship of the nineties. Like, even if you don't relate necessarily to the, you know, going to Amoeba or like making zines, it just remind it just reminds me of like what it was like to be that age and like talking about music and, um, you know, co- dreaming of like making movies or like doing all these things. It's just like a really, uh, it, it it's, it's a really great memoir to read where like it's sort of about music but it's more about friendship and the way music defines it um i'm glad i listened to it i'm glad that i got over my own like kind of anti-nyc bullshit um because i've really it's been a breeze to read and i'd recommend it to anyone who um you know is it it, if you're if you're our age it's also a lot more resonant well it's like right before the internet became a thing well you know I, i consider this podcast our zine Ian, (laughs) this is our zine that we're putting together with our hands. Uh, I want to talk about a new EP from a band that I really like called Daisy. 
Uh, this is the project of a Virginia-based singer-songwriter named James Goodson. Um, I talked about his uh, debut album last year. It's called Out of Body. And that's mm-hmm. just like, if you haven't listened to this record yet, I really recommend it. It's just like a very fun and catchy power pop record. Uh, I think at the time I likened it to like Car Seat Headrest if it was produced by Robert John Mutt Lang. Like it, it, it's like this indie <laughs> rock that has like this shiny coat of like fuzz around it. Um, mm-hmm. And this new EP is basically the same length as the album. It's uh, eight songs in 20 minutes. Uh, so it's a little bit shorter, but this is classified as an EP versus the LP that was out of body. This album is called Other Body. And hmm. if anything, I feel like this album is even more power pop. Like it does have that sort of like Fountains of Wayne vibe to it. Like lots of like Absolutely. two like two and a half minute songs that just that just fly by. But again, this is just like the definition of like a band that doesn't have like the easy media narrative, you know, that you can like write about them being a reflection of society in some way. Uh, the dude just writes really good songs and he does it one after another. Again, it's very breezy, goes down extremely well. Um, we're technically in spring right now, even though where I live, it's still cold as shit, <laughs> but this is a good spring weather record. Uh, so definitely check it out again. It's called other body. The band is called Daisy. D-A-Z-Y. You will enjoy it. Uh, That about does it for this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.